Investing purely for the purpose of financial gain is becoming less popular. What is not up for debate is the ESG in its purest form, and that is about making capitalism less dangerous, is something that is being embraced. For the vast majority of investors, the stock market remains primarily a place for making money work harder. But increasingly, environmental and social consciousness is playing a role in investment decisions. As is the behaviour and composition of senior management. Good governance is being held in higher and higher regard as investors tune in to the obvious. Well-managed companies make more money. And some investors aren't merely seeking to pick companies which promote good environmental, social and governance practices. Some are choosing to invest in companies which are actively trying to make the world a better place. Impact investment is investment that uh, seeks to achieve both financial and social and environmental returns. But despite its soaring popularity, ESG and impact investing remain relatively new concepts, which means they can be hard to monitor. And a lack of clear guidelines on how companies are measured for their ESG or impact investing scores means there has been a rise in so-called greenwashing, with both companies and funds attempting to make themselves seem cleaner than they actually are. We're going to discuss these sticky issues with Associate Editor Algie Hall, with some help from Ronald Cohen, famed venture capitalist, Peter Toogood, Chief Investment Officer at Retirement Solutions Provider Embark Group, and Tom McGillicuddy, co-founder of Impact Investment at Ticker. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm John Human. Welcome to the Investment Hour. So impact investing, ESG, ethical investing, responsible investing, whatever you want to call it, there's been a steady increase in demand in the last few years. And in the last few months, amid the coronavirus crisis and before then, thanks to the work of the likes of Greta Thunberg, ESG investing is exploding. A few weeks ago, my colleague Lauren spoke to Sir Ronald Cohen, whose Wikipedia page describes him as the father of social investing. So who better to run you through where we are with ESG investing and how we have got here than him? So I think our world is heading uh, to making investment decisions that are based not just on risk return, but on risk return and impact. And the watershed between risk return and risk return impact will be the publication of impact-weighted financial accounts. Um, And... uh, in, in that respect, uh, there's a parallel with what happened in, uh, after 1929. What, what, what do you mean by that? So in 1929, after the Great Crash, investors realized that they had been investing in companies without understanding their true profits. Uh, because in those days, there were... Uh, every company could pick its own accounting uh, principles. There were no generally accepted accounting principles. And there were no auditors to verify the figures that companies were publishing. In 1933, the U.S. led the way in introducing uh, both these things, standardized accounting principles and auditors. Today, post-COVID-19, we find ourselves in a situation where $30 trillion worth of investment is flowing to companies and that uh, seek to achieve more than, than profit, uh, environmental, social and governance investing, as it's uh, called, um, seeks to minimize the harm that is done socially and environmentally. Um, uh, and yet there is absolutely no transparency Uh, on the real impact performance of companies. 
And so in the same way that in 1929 we brought uh, much more dependable uh, ways of measuring profit, we have to bring today much more dependable ways of measuring impact. So, John, Audi, that is the big question. How on earth do we come up with more dependable ways of measuring impact investing? With great difficulty, I think would be the answer, the short answer. Also, I think, you know, you've got that fundamental question of is it um, measurable in a nice, concise, um, quantifiable way? Because a lot, of, a lot of what investors should really be interested in comes down to common sense analysis, which... Um, isn't necessarily something that you can put a number on when you're when you're talking about um, positive impacts of you know ESG or you know impact investing. It's um it's often quite a nuanced question that you're answering. It's actually that's partly a, a major part of the problem because part of their part of their life and it's not really something that's an ethical dilemma. And others others would say that investing in oil and gas is is a positive thing to do because a lot of the big oil and gas companies are also the biggest investors in green energy. So having the fact that it's, uh, it's something that everyone has a personal opinion on as well blurs the picture even more. So, so basically everyone's moral th- thermometer is slightly different. Yeah. And that, compli- that complicates putting a number on, on stuff. But lots of people have tried. I mean, there, there are all manner of acronyms behind uh, who have attempted, all manner of organisations that have attempted to to put ESG standardisation in place, and, and, and they're all slightly co- contradictory and conflicting. And too many of them. So also, there, I mean, there, there are different objectives that investors have, because at the end of the day, you know, everyone wants to make money. That's kind of, you know, how are we going to do this to make money should be um, a fundamental question. Um, other, otherwise, impact investing or um, ESG investing doesn't really have a place for most investors. But... Um, I mean, impact investing is, you know, interesting because it's trying to have a positive impact and um, probably the kind of like, you know, looking for solutions is um, more part of um, that kind of investment approach. But then other people are looking for companies which are moving towards doing less harm through their activities, whereas other people are looking for companies which um, have higher ESG um, scores, which is meant to imply that um, they're behaving in a very good manner and um, have positive things going on in their businesses anyway. And I mean, those are basically, you know, three broad camps that you can put ESG investing into where the objectives are all to make money, but in different ways. Meant to is quite a crucial part of the of that third option. The ESG, they're meant to be doing uh, doing less harm than than others. Uh, but they're not always doing that, which is another big problem. I mean, one of the things I struggle with is that, I mean, ESG is, is a catch-all. You know, you've got environmental, social, and governance all in one thing, but, but they're all different things. So you can have a, a company that is in, environmentally problematic, that is really well-governed, does great, great work for society. So, so actually, you know, th- this catch-all ESG is, is something that troubles me. Perhaps this is where some of the complications lie, that, that, that companies perhaps can never qualify on all three fronts and that's maybe why that the move to impact is a positive thing because impact is a general positive contribution to the world rather than trying to put it into three these three camps esg has become a nice brand but but impact having a positive impact is uh it may be where where things are going that may be the the more mainstream and as Algie said that is those are companies that are actively making decisions that are 
making the world a better place, which includes companies like Vestas, and actually includes companies like Tesla, which the sole purpose of Tesla is to to reduce our reliance on petrol cars. Yeah, I mean the the the, the only the only trouble is it's kind of um, impact is is necessarily a smaller subsection of the entire investment universe. So I mean, I, I guess the you know the good thing about ESG and asking and demanding that companies score highly um, on the ESG ratings is that. It, it can encompass almost everyone. Um, obviously, some people like to have exclusions, but um, you know, even an arms manufacturer can, um, you, can you know, tick some of the boxes. Or you're talking about a lot of different things. I, I think you know, really, the interesting thing from an investment perspective, though, is you've got two things which have really reached a tipping point um, around the same time, which is just the weight of money blowing into these kind of more um, morally considered i suppose you, you could say um investment themes and also the weight weight of regulation which dictates that it's a necessity so you've got um you've got both cost of capital improving for companies which can uh, behave in a certain manner and um you've also got uh, return on capital ba- uh, potentially improving or being protected by companies which behave in a manner which fit in with the regulation so that uh, that for me that's what makes it really interesting this um you know, this kind of sustainability drive or whatever you want to call it. There's an actual um, uh, very, you know, high level investment logic, which suggests that, you know, if you if you target these kind of portfolios, um, you may actually do a bit better than you would otherwise. But but that's where I think some of the problems potentially creep in as well. So, you know, if the cost of capital for a company that is describing itself as as you know, ESG friendly uh, is lower, then all companies will be queuing up to describe themselves as ESG friendly, even perhaps if they're not. That's where the measurement becomes really important. And yet the measurement is the thing that doesn't really work properly at the moment. Mm. It is. I mean, also, I mean, the, the measurement, I mean, there's a huge amount that's looked at. These companies are scrutinised a lot. And, um, you know, box ticking, can, you know, we, we know it can, you know, it can be totally phony. But um, also with the amount that's being scrutinised, there is, you know, the more it's done and the more the the, comp- the, the investors who are, you know, who manage funds and are investing in these companies are scrutinised, the um, more progress is made to making sure the only way that a company can tick the boxes is it if it's actually doing the things that it's purporting to do. Like, you know, and I, I think we were going to talk about um, Boohoo as an example of a company which looked like it was doing very well in the ESG scores. And then, you know, the tide's gone out and it's been found to be, you know, swimming without its undies or whatever. Mm-hmm. We'll, come, we'll come back to Boohoo. But yeah, absolutely. The uh, the box ticking is partly a problem because it's com- a lot of its company self-reporting. It's there because there isn't a general standard of impact investing uh, like there is to an extent a general standard of accounting companies have the ability to say yes i'm doing that without actually having to put the hard work in and boohoo is a prime example of that but there are others as well that have said yes we're doing positive things for the environment we're doing positive things for society we're well governed on on xyz but it is still all down to what the company's saying rather than than actually hitting targets which have been set out by a standard which applies to all companies I think I think there's also a problem potentially that there are too many boxes to tick. And, you know, I think, Algie, this was something that you alluded to in a piece on uh, ESG investing. You wrote for the magazine some time ago. Green, green is good, I think we, we called it. With, uh, Gordon Gecko on the cover with a halo. Um, but, but the point was, 
not all of these things actually matter and achieve the objectives that ESG is meant to. Um, so, so for yeah. me, it seems like there needs to be a whittling down of things that are actually material and also achieve, to the company's performance, but also achieve what ESG is meant to achieve. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, also, um, I, I think, yeah, on, on that exact point, I mean, it's, you know, when, when we're looking at ESG, one of the important things which we're essentially trying to... Um, that is is this company being managed in an intelligent way is capital allocation good at this company and if a company is address, addressing the important points for it um in in that kind of esg world then there's that, that's a really good market this is a this is a uh, management team that really thinks about the things which matter and equally if it's just doing the box ticking if it's a company which um on you know the you know the, the social aspects but actually it's got a massive environmental problem um and it's not really addressing that then it's probably being managed badly because you know that's the resources being funneled in the wrong direction so i mean it's a it's a very good proxy for you know general capital allocation and also and also you know it's kind of um if you if you're doing the right things in terms of esg you're um mitigating you know what is becoming a more and more real risk um you know, there's regu- huge amounts of regulation. There's um, there's also, you know, there's a very big push to support um, positive um, behaviours. And, you know, you, you really want companies to be capitalising on that. It's not something that um, companies are head in the sands about, the sand about, really, I don't think, anymore. The Investment Hour. 60 Minutes of Money with the Investors Chronicle. Let's go through those three parts of ESG investing, starting with the environment. And then in the environmental area, we have four decades worth of measurement and science uh, and pricing of carbon emissions and other emissions uh, so that we can actually today publish uh, the uh, environmental cost of of companies uh, in quite an accurate uh, way. An initiative I'm involved with at Harvard Business School published um, uh, just uh, last week, uh, uh, the environmental cost of 1,800 uh, different uh, companies. Ronald Cohen is right to an extent that we should be able to measure a company's impact on the environment relatively easily, but it isn't always that simple. Boohoo is a company which, until recently, has regularly appeared in ESG and sustainable funds. On its website, it makes all sorts of claims about the green credentials of the company. We have gone paperless with all our returns. As a member of the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan, we are working with other brands to help reduce environmental impact. But this is a fast fashion retailer, and fast fashion is quite simply appallingly bad for the environment. Large bodies of water are disappearing because cotton is so thirsty. Before I started travelling for this documentary, I knew almost nothing. I was fairly familiar what went down from a human perspective, the human cost, but the environmental cost, yeah, I wasn't informed at all. Hello, how are you? Great, I'm you. Stacey, nice to see you. Thank you. Um, can we borrow you for five yeah. minutes? What have you been buying? My mum bought this. She bought a, a jacket. So show me what you've got in your bag. Ah, so a hoodie? Yeah. And is it cotton? Yep. This is 100% cotton. Brilliant, interesting. So how much water, Johnny, do you think has gone in to grow in the cotton necessary to make this jacket? Probably about 800. 800? Yeah. Mm, 70 litres. 
20, 30 liters. 20 or 30 liters. Yeah. Throwing the cotton yeah. to make that jacket yeah. will have taken 10,330 liters of water. 4,580 liters of water. 10,800 liters of water just to grow the cotton to make that jacket. So then, social, let's hear what Sir Ronald has to say about that. Now, it used to be thought that you could measure nothing in the social area. Uh, in fact, we're proving that you can measure a lot in the social area. And you can look at um, a company, you can look at its uh, employment, you can look at its level of diversity, uh, you can compare the diversity within uh, the company to the diversity uh, around it, in its, uh, around its facilities uh, and so on. You can attribute uh, to the lack of, of diversity a cost which is represented by the number of people missing at every echelon uh, of, of the company and the salaries they would have got. Um, you can look at uh, gender uh, parity uh, in terms of employment and so on and so forth. So you can measure a lot. But again, it is incredibly complicated. Every order comes through their Burnley warehouse. Boohoo's website says the warehouse is the driving force of the company. And their family sentiment creates an exciting, ambitious and supportive work ethic. But would all of their 1,000 warehouse workers agree? My name is Kieran Hardman. Uh, I currently work for fashion retailer, boohoo.com. I've been there approximately two years now. I started on the shop floor and I've moved um, on up to team leader, where I look after about 150 staff. Kieran had long been worried about the working conditions at Boohoo. So a few months ago, he contacted dispatchers. Well, I'm getting people on a regular basis um, complaining um, about the conditions uh, within Boohoo. People are struggling. Some of the guys really need help, which is um, how I come to, to be meeting you now. All I'd heard about this company was what an amazing success story it was. One of the shining lights in the north of England. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's becoming busier, but some of the things that have gone on within the last few years um, have just been absolutely horrendous, and it needs to change. So one of the things that I think is pretty astonishing about the Boohoo situation is that the programme, the Dispatches programme, which first uncovered some of the issues in Boohoo, was filmed in 2017, but it's still been an ESG favourite among investors for, for, for the last three years. Why, why is that? Why has Boohoo been able to be both in the spotlight for horrendous social behaviour, but also an ESG favourite? It's, it's puzzled me. Um, I mean, the very fact that a fast fashion company can be um, an ESG-friendly company puzzles me anyway. Because, you know, this mass consumerism, this, this, this idea of disposable clothing, which I think that uh, Stacey Dooley 
in, uh, in some of her documentaries has also looked at yeah, is, 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 is something that, that is hugely problematic. So, so from you know, box one, how did something like Boohoo pass um, uh, an ESG test? Forget about the labour practices. It's a fast fashion company. Mm. I mean, I, 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 I view the Boohoo uh, ESG story as one of um, a company in uh, an area which, you know, exactly as you say, you know, is considered by many people to be totally toxic, but trying to um, uh, enforce better practices. So you looked at a lot of their ESG material and they were doing things like, um, and, and, you know, they, they still will be. And, I, you know, I don't want to be too cynical because, um, you know, if a company is trying to, you know, improve, then it's, you know, the way it's doing things and fair play. But um, they were talking about things like, you know, encouraging people to um keep their clothes for longer recycle more stuff like that and then and then they were also making a lot of noise about um auditing their factories i mean because obviously the story about leicester has been known for absolutely ages um you know reported widely um but they you know they they were talking about having full you know full transparency on their supply chain you know they employed um long before um the story broke about um the kind of you know sweatshops and last year covid etc they'd empl- employed someone to oversee um the factory auditing side of things so um i mean they, they were they were kind of making a lot of the moves that you that you would have um you know hoped for and i think that's what seduced a lot of those esg investors um you know they 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 bought it and then, obviously, a scandal like the one that we've seen has happened, and it becomes, you know, it's it becomes totally impossible to own. But I mean, but also quite fundamentally, what matters? It's making clothes which end up in landfill incredibly quickly, and it's making them in a place where we know there are labour, you know, real, real serious labour problems. So yeah, exactly. You know, do you really want to go anywhere near that if you're running an ESG fund? <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I'd, I'd imagine not, but. Um... <laughs> But they did, and and fund managers did, and then so fund managers to an extent have to answer for this, uh, the the boohoo situation because private investors, okay, I mean that's uh, that that's a decision that every individual's made, and and maybe they weren't aware of the full situation going on at boohoo. But a fund manager who's putting a company in a fund which they are claiming to be socially responsible absolutely should never have put boohoo in it, and that's that's appalling. I, I mean, on that front, I think the the industry should have something to answer for because, you know, a lot of people are putting their, they want to invest in ESG companies. Um, they don't want to do the legwork themselves and they're putting their trust in fund managers mm. to make sure they are going out and picking the kind of companies that, that, that they would be comfortable owning. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so for me, that's really problematic. Yeah. If the fund manager industry is not putting in the real due diligence or having the sort of common sense approach to, to picking their investments. Mm. I mean, I, I think I do. I do think there's a kind of case to. And not, this isn't that I disagree with that point, but there's a um, there are grounds to play devil advo- devil's advocate here because you think of a company like Orsted, which was a dirty fossil fuel, um, you know, company, not that long ago. Now it's a complete green energy pioneer, and that com- that has happened because um, they've made some very bold moves in terms of changing their business model and divesting. And they've been supported by investors. And a lot of them, you know, are ESG investors who have been kind of like cheering them on to, um, you know, to go green, to have a to have a more sustainable business. And it's been a huge success. And the valuation now is like, you know, um, multiples of what it would be 
if, if it had stayed doing things the old way. And, and other um, uh, energy companies like, you know, Shell and BP are looking at green with envy, pardon the pun. But, um, so, I mean, so, uh, that, you know, that, that, there, is, there is a rationale for, you know, supporting a business in terms of making it better. Yeah, no, that's, that's just, absolutely true. And it's only the institutions that can do that because private investors don't have the, the power and the say and the sway within organisations, big companies to actually in direct change. But yeah, in the case of Orsted, the fund managers certainly help do that. And yeah, and absolutely, BT and Shell, they have, I don't think, personally, I don't think they should be omitted from from ESG portfolios because they are on the road to making change. The difference, I think, with Boohoo is that it said it was on the road to making change. It was not. And that is, that's something that fund managers really should have seen. And that's, and that's where transparent standards are so important mm. because, you know, and, and transparent standards that are um, scrutinised by an outside body um, because, because, Otherwise, you have to take a company's word for it. That is, that is, it is on that journey. Yeah. Even if it is, perhaps yeah. not. Yeah. Finally, let's uh, let's talk the governance. And while we're boohoo bashing, we might as well start there. There's a governance situation at boohoo too. What what's going on there? Well, this is the related party transactions that it is used quite considerably to build its business up. Uh, acquisitions of. Uh, Companies that are owned by directors, essentially, and related parties. Um, and that, family uh, members. And family and members. children of directors, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is not something that we generally like to see uh, as investors it, when it comes to governance. I mean, go- governance is often a really good place to start. And I mean, often people say, you know, the G is really the big one to look at in ESG because um, if there's something which doesn't look right at board level it normally permeates uh, down the company. And I, I was actually reading um, in terms of, kind of you know, ESG scores going awry. I was, I've, I've been reading um, a, a book which um, by, by Steve Clapham of Behind the Balance Sheet, um, which it, it isn't out yet. I'm reading a preview copy, but um, he's got a great bit about VW and ESG and VW, the fact that it was, um, it had great e- a great ESG score, um, which he, um, had been really impressed by until he found out that um, the, uh, the 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 chief executive's wife was on the board, and it just been, it had been put on the board, and, this, and then and then the scandal broke with Diesel, etc. And then, and and then it left him just thinking, how on earth can um, you know this company ever rate highly as a ESG company when you're making those kind of appointments? And um, you know things like that can be a red flag to. You know, something something at board level isn't being handled in a way that you would expect it to be or want it to be. That means a lot of other things probably are being handled quite loosely. I, I would agree with that 100%. I think if a company is well governed, it's probably paying lots and lots of attention to other aspects of its business, um, the, the environmental uh, impact of its business and, and the social impact of its business. That That is what good governance brings. So I, I completely agree. That is uh, the starting point. Um, but, but governance is a strange one because... Because actually, um, we were talking about this this earlier in our uh, our, our weekly features meeting. Uh, when it comes to family businesses, they often score badly on governance because often they are, you know, there's, there's probably a couple couple of family members on the board, um, probably all men, um, you know, often all men. But these companies are often because of the nature, because of where they've come from, because of their heritage, they're often really well governed. So again, it comes back to what? How much you actually score good governance? Um, the, because- uh- the governance issue in the UK is almost a case of 
too much, too many red lines and too much, too stringent regulation around it. That it's really black and white. The uh, the UK's govern- governance code. When you've been on the board for X number of years, you're no longer considered independent. And and financial institutions, big backers, often don't vote those members back in. I mean, that's absurd. That's absolutely ridiculous to think that because you've been a member of uh, a of the board for a certain amount of time you can't do your job properly surely you should do it better and that that those sort of red lines have led to the fact that there there are no board members on any of the UK's big banks who were involved in the financial crisis they don't have the experience of that it's maybe that's a good thing they didn't have involvement in the financial crisis but the lessons that were learned they weren't there to learn them and now they're running the biggest biggest banks in the UK it's crazy it, it, it reminds me of the kind of um, the mutant algorithm which was used to mark all the A levels. It's come back from from the from the top down. It looks like it's all fine, but then you go down to the individual level, and it makes no sense anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it, it's that kind of it, our, our our boards thinking with integrity about the long term interests of a company. That's I mean that's the kind of key governance questions question and. Um, Obviously, incentives can tell you quite a bit, actually. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of are are you know are they tied into the long term future and in, in, in the right way, which make them think, make, which will make them think kind of holistically. I suppose would be the word, the ghastly word, as it is about um, about the business. I, I think disclosure is is a massively important aspect of good governance as well. You know, good, well governed companies don't have anything to hide. Um, you know, if you if you start seeing uh, a bit of opacity in company reporting, then then for me, there's a suspicion that governance is not all it should be behind mm. that. Yeah, well, we were just before we started recording. We were talking about Relic, so there's a an issue that Algie and I are not really sure where where it's come from. But Relic is an example of a company whose transparency is actually unbelievably good. It, this, they, they report, for example, they put their pension deficit in their debt level on the front page of their of their accounts which is something that not many companies do you can get away with not putting your pension deficit in your in your debt so so companies don't do it and and that's something that that that's a level of transparency which which is uh, is good to see even if we are struggling as to why the debt is so high at the moment but and growing but in general companies which are that transparent is a, is a very good sign of good governance. Well, next, next is the classic example for mm. me. They, they hide nothing. I mean, talking of disclosure, the other, the other way of looking at that is what companies actually tell you about how they're performing on ESG scores. And, and again, there's no standardisation be, behind that. Or, or as far as I'm aware, any real requirement uh, under sort of reporting conventions to do so. So again, lots of work probably needs to be done there. On the, on the sort of, uh, on, the, on the, almost how you combine it with, with their, their annual and, and half yearly sort of, uh, accounting performance no i mean and, and and also especially in some of these um you know majorly polluting companies which have products which pollute um, the, the the idea of scope three is relatively new where you have to look at not only your own footprint when you're um you know producing your good but but the goods once they go out into the world and you know how they're used how they're disposed of things like that there's, um, I mean, yeah, they, I mean, it's, it's such a complex question. Um, and, you know, so many different things have to be considered in each different situation. So even if we can measure it, the role that equity investors and companies and capitalism in general can actually play in improving the world is a matter which is still up for debate. Something Alex Newman spoke to Peter Tugood, Chief Investment Officer at Retirement Solutions Provider in Bark, about. 
brutal truth is governments are leading it, um, as, as indeed only they can. Um, let, let's, let's get down to a couple of base cases. Um, number one, the listed sector in terms of carbon footprint, the economist's words, not mine, is at best 30% which means 70% of what goes on is not in the hands of the listed sector. So everyone could stop crowing at fund managers and the involved financial community is the only way of solving this problem. Yes, they can try and change the behavior of Exxon, discuss whether that's the right or wrong thing to do. We can come on to that too. But the fact is, at first and foremost, it must be government-led. 70% of what we're discussing is not listed. That means there could be no influence born to bear except government interference in that process. And I'm, uh, you know, so let's get out in the out in the open, it's not just a comment on whether the listed piece, but where the listed piece is part of the process, as you have identified, there's, there's engagement and there's disinvestment. And I think um, for us um, and the way we look at it, as, as what I do, I also sit in the IA Sectors Committee, so I have some vague insight into this. Um, it's positive impact. Mark Carney is discussing a positive impact. We'll come back to that in a second. Positive impact funds, impact funds. There are negative screen funds. You take out what we don't like, absolutely fine. And there's the general marketplace where there is a definite, absolute 100% push to take ESG, which existed in most cases, by the way, five years ago, because do not forget institutional mandates for a good period of time now, not the retail pooled funds that all, we, all of us um, buy, not the mutual funds we all buy, but actually the segregated mandates, your sovereign wealth funds, etc., have been specifying these mandates for a long time. So this isn't new investing. It's just the retail world is embracing what the institutional marketplace has been following for a while, which is we are concerned about E. S and G. So the UN principles on this, the um, various ways in which you are now starting to see how you account for these things, the accounting version of the world of, 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 of ES and G, are you diversified on your board? Are you showing good governance, et cetera, et cetera. They, they have moved from, as I put it, page 30 of a retail presentation, retail investor presentation, towards the front of it. It was always there. It was embedded in processes to different degrees. Discuss that in a minute as well. But the fact of the matter is it was always front and center in most um, fund managers' minds. They don't want to be associated with companies that um, exploit a bad socially, pollute the rivers of the world, et cetera, et cetera, exploit labor. So I think there's always been an embedded part in, in most processes. I think what has happened is as the social conscience of the world has moved on, I think the last five years has validated that process, concerned about climate change primarily, but other issues as well. Fund management groups have engaged to varying degrees how far that's part of their normal investment process, as opposed to dedicating resource to it and manufacturing funds that explicitly express um, a positive impact kind of um, approach or a negative screen kind of approach. So I think the trend was inevitable. I don't think it's trendy. I think it's a trend that continues. As, as you see it, where, where is this heading? Because, I mean, obviously there are multiple frameworks. So we, we are talking in generalities here, and, and it's very useful that you you talked about, I suppose, both impact investing and the negative screening. But having, I mean, having formally covered the, the commodity sector, it seems like it's going to be quite hard for, for a number of companies, really. BP obviously making a big splash in their, in their ambitions for, for becoming a, a sort of yep. net carbon zero company. And that's obviously to be, to be welcomed. But at a certain point, there are, there are companies, surely, which they're going to look better in the hands of private owners for on, on any negative screening. Is, di- is divestment simply just going, to, just going to reduce that 30% whatever equi- equivalent vice or uh, damage I, I, you're, yeah. you're screening for? And, and really, we're just left with a pool of virtuous, but um, perhaps un- unmoored from the, the real economy stocks. 
Well, I think you have to accept that if a mining company is doing its best to limit its damage, it's paying its workers properly, looking after them, trying to minimize um, the extent to which its operations um, create a carbon footprint. Um, that, 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 that positive engagement is what you would call um, the, the mainstream way of making capitalism work, because the fact is, if capitalism is a definition of the exploitation of land, labor and capital, of which it, by the way, is, and that hasn't changed, what we're actually doing with ESG is trying to minimize the impact of that. You yeah. can't improve the fact you're taking copper out of the ground. You can't improve the fact that you're making concrete to build roads. So uh, the reality of the situation is you have to do them. You still have to build roads, but can you minimize the impact and damage to that? So, no, I think disinvestment is for certain people with a proclivity to say, I don't like tobacco. I don't like this. I don't like fossil fuel. I don't like that. Fine. Then you can have your chance to invest in those things, particularly expressed by positive impact funds, whereas you, you can take a very, a very, very holistic approach and say, actually, I'm just going to um, invest in those that are either involved in cleaning up the mess or mm. explicitly are created to stop the mess in the first place by doing something different, which is also another way of investing in a positive impact where the negative screen is a personal choice. Um, but you're right. So tobacco is a really good example. Um, uh, I'm a liberal. I can't help it. If someone wants to smoke, that's their choice. Um, it, it, it doesn't actually, um, it, if they're up to them. So for me, um, tobacco companies are what they are. People will t- take vices and, and not everyone wants to live for 100 years in a nursing home. Some do, some don't. So you take your own view of ethics. I, I struggle with this because I think I could say McDonald's is just as bad because mm. it makes people obese by eating McDonald's. So what ethics? This is why I try and take out ethics and ESG because I don't think they're the same thing. And I think that's where I have a real struggle with it. I, I acknowledge capitalism. I wouldn't be in financial markets if I didn't, but I'm all wholeheartedly in favor of finding the person who can turn the lights off quicker than someone else, can use less energy to get from A to B, sure. and can do all those good things to actually improve the impact we have on the environment. Um, so for me, disinvestment is a personal choice. If you don't want to be in that space, you ha- can now find funds that say no arms, uh, yeah, no pornography, no drink, no drugs, no um, uh, smoking. Absolutely fine. And there's a market catering for that and all uh, grist to its mill. Um, I don't think that can become mainstream thinking, but I think it will become mainstream thinking if ESG morphs into moralizing about what is right and wrong then I think you'll see even greater disinvestment from the likes of tobacco companies. But I notice Campari doesn't come under the same pressure. I notice Heineken doesn't come mm. under the same pressure because guess what? Most people drink. So unsurprisingly, there's where the hypocrisy makes me laugh. We, we quite happily abuse the crap out of tobacco companies, but people still own drinks companies. So I think that's where I struggle with the ethical debate. What is not up for debate is the ESG in its purest form, and that is about making capitalism less dangerous, is something that is being embraced. And I think the acceleration led by governments, led by regulatory authorities, um, is going to continue. There's going to be this continuous fight about what is, and you've covered commodities, you understand that, what is truly green. Unfortunate that some of the biggest investors in green technology happen to be the biggest energy companies in the world today. So there's the issue. Do you encourage Shell to move further along? They're the ones with the wallets to actually make it happen. Do you let carbon footprint carry on for a while while they invest in the things that are more sustainable? Um, those are really difficult decisions to take, and probably above your or my pay grade. Um, uh, we both probably have a view. Personally, I'm not in favor of disinvestment en masse because I think you don't help the situation there. It just pushes it onto the governments. It would be better if, as a mass, we were all saying, let's just exploit a little less. Let's find better ways of exploiting. Let's be more efficient. Let's get that 200 miles to the gallon engine 
rather than seeking out the 30 mile an hour engine, gallon engine. If we could do that, think how much pet, less petrol mm. we could use. Those are the sensible things we should be doing, accepting that carbon's still going to be here for the next 20 years yeah. and, and not just running away and saying, we ask tomorrow morning, electric cars plugged into a grid that can't cope anyway. So we've also got to think longer term about how you build the infrastructure out to decarbonize. Those are the exciting things which I think Carney's talking about. It's yeah. the ecosystem in aggregate to improve the way we stop the carbon. So air pollution, water pollution, all those good things, they're all virtuous. My problem with Carney's argument, I'm not sure how it fits into daily dealing mutual funds. I think the longer term perspectives, when you're doing the ecosystem piece, investing in Zambia and Zimbabwe and all the things that involve long term development, um, programs. I think they sit with NGOs, government, and to some extent, maybe pension funds. I'm, I'm not sure it's readily able to be exploited um, by y- your mainstream investing public, bar some of the picks and shovels providers who are obviously aiding that process. But mm-hmm. I think it's a little more difficult uh, to embrace that as a, as, a, as a standard investor. I think a lot of them have a long-term payoff and they need, therefore, somewhere between government and pinch, long-term pension fund support. To tackle the theme of ESG here and talking about um, how it might take shape in, in the future in, in portfolios. Um, HSBC's asset management arm this week said that they want to sort of reframe the E in ESG, I suppose, to think more than just climate change, which in some ways it's become synonymous with. And as you said there, the environmental scope of ESG obviously includes myriad other things. Um, And they're they're talking about wanting a new natural capital to be a new asset class. And, you know, forgive me for asking, because I know it's not you who's putting this forward as as an idea. But I, I suppose the idea of preserving forestry or protecting natural assets could be a cornerstone um, feature of portfolios alongside, you know, long-term uh, hard assets like infrastructure. Do you have any thoughts on on that? Sort no, of what seems to be emergent capital. thinking? Again, I, I think the natural capital piece, which is at the end of the day, the whole ecosystem. So we all look at the impact of carbon footprint. But you know, you build the new factory, you build the new dam, whatever it is. What is the impact on the overall environment? Um, it's interesting that Carney thinks that is a, and it was Mark Carney, you know, he's an advocate for that and obviously um, um, is pushing that agenda. Again, I go back to my main point. I'm not entirely clear, and I openly admit that, as to how that would be easily um, a, a tool for what I would say your classic mutual fund bar some of the corporate beneficiaries of, 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 of that process. Because basically, it's just a green audit of everything as distinct from the idea that in isolation, you build X and don't take account of the environmental impact around you of, of, of everything else. So yeah. it, it, it is interesting, but I go back to my point. I think that's NGO government slash pension fund stuff. I think there's a very long-term payoff. I'm not entirely clear how you can exploit that um, in a fund at this point. And hands up, it's relatively new thinking. Um, There's no reason why I should be a thought leader on it. I I can see some of the problems with it in relation to um, the kind of typical you can buy a listed infrastructure fund, you know, but they're listed equities. So you are buying, you are buying toll roads, you are buying infrastructure, which is distinctly different from what I would call holistic whole investing um, and it's a relatively new field we're discussing here is ESG making existing structures um, less exploitative more inclusive that's a very different debate from saying do we think 360 and I go back to my point I think that's something to develop um, in the medium term it will be interesting to see how HSBC manufactures that into a product 
um, that, that in, in aggregate people can invest in. Because to me, it sounds like medium term, long term investment horizons. Yeah. It sounds like closed capital, closed ended funds. It doesn't sound to me like daily dealing equity slash bond funds. Yeah. But I think it's, it's those structures. Maybe people want those. A couple of things that Alex and Peter discussed, which are very interesting and may stir something in investors who want to invest with an ethical, green or social mind. Someone who is helping investors achieve that is Tom McGillicuddy, co-founder of impact investment app Ticker, who I have spoken to this week. Hi, Tom. Thanks for joining me. So kick us off. Could you just run through what Ticker is and and how you came to co-found the company? Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Uh, Ticker is um, an impact investment app um, designed for younger first-time investors um, getting them to invest for the first time in companies around the world that are linked to some kind of social or environmental theme like climate change, um, for example. Um, we launched February 2019, um, so we're going about, what, 16 months, something like that, uh, in the UK only, and uh, came to it because I, Matt, who's, who's the co-founder of the business, um, we both worked in uh, investment management industry for about eight years. The, the latter four years of that, I was working for Wellington Management, um, and that's where I got introduced to the idea of impact investing, I was working within their impact investment team, uh, managing money for institutional investors. And Matt and I got our heads together and thought, you know, wouldn't it be more powerful if we could kind of bring this to everyone? You know, wouldn't this way of investing, could it be the tool to engage people that have never invested before because they understand the themes and, you know, they feel that their values are linked to it? So that was the uh, the genesis the genesis of the idea. We thought the storytelling narrative element of impact investing had the had the ability to bring people to invest uh, and adopt a long-term habit because they got that short-term good, uh, feel-good factor. Um, and that's kind of what we've been trying to prove out so far. Yeah, I mean, timing-wise, you you kind of bang on. <laughs> early yeah. early 2019, it was a concept that was, I suppose, relatively still, still yeah. something that was slightly outside of the mainstream, but it does feel like it's becoming far more mainstream. And as you say, something that people are actually embedding in their decision to even start investing. Is that what you yeah. find among the people who are, who are using the Ticker app and are, are getting involved with your stuff? Yeah, we found so the, our customer base, um, 90% of them have never invested before. So we're the, we're the first time, basically, of, of more or less everybody. And I think um, the hook of doing something good and for the planet and yourself is kind of the dual kind of reason that people come to us and, and use the product. And yeah, we couldn't have predicted a better year to start that the climate movement last year really started to ramp up. Um, and we thought, you know, we were working in this part of the industry, maybe 2014 onwards, we kind of saw it um, beginning. Um, but even we didn't predict it going this well so soon in terms of the structural change happening. Um, and now it feels like the the default way to consider investing for our generation seems to be about, okay, where, where is the money going? Um, what companies am I investing in? And they want to see full look through to that. So I think it's quickly becoming the default way uh, to invest for a lot of people. Mm, yeah, and actually it's not just the environmental thing that's kicked off recently. The social side as well has been yeah. massive in the last year or so. You say our, our generation, um, see, referring to you, you and me, we're, we're we're probably on the youngest side of the uh, of the, yeah. of, the of, inv- of the general investor space. Do you yeah. think it's something that the older older I know it's I know you at Ticker are targeting younger people, but do you think it's something that will gradually infiltrate across the generations as well as the uh, the younger demographic that people? Yeah, I think so. I, I don't think caring about these issues is um, limited to one generation at all. I think for us, the reason why we started with that generation is because it's our generation and we understand them and how to market to them and build a product because, you know, I'm 32, the average age of a ticket customer is 31. So we have, a, and the, the team's all around similar age. So we have a very good idea of how to kind of, uh, present a product to that generation to get them interested in using it. But I've seen what we've seen is as we've grown, it's only been a year or so since we launched, 
we have people from um, generations above now seeing our development and seeing us get coverage and seeing the app develop and perhaps gain a little bit more trust in us um, and that we've been around a little bit longer and then adopting us. So we have we have uh, customers coming in that are not that generation now and they have uh, higher balances. They kind of uh, they stick with us for the long term. So the 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 definite idea for us, if we're going to scale to be a, a sizable investment business, is we can't just acquire thirty one year olds. It has to be across the spectrum, and we have to kind of appeal broadly. And that was always the plan. But we we thought it was wise to start with a generation that we knew very very well and kind of expand from there. Um, and we've started to see that um, in the past, I would say, six months. One thing that I think maybe is a more of an issue for those people who are already investors is that uh, adding the environmental, social, government and impact side into your investing may have may have a detrimental impact on performance. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is, that, is that a myth or is that something that people do need to be aware of if they're doing this kind of style of investing? Yeah, I think, I think for me personally, it's 100% a myth. And um, I can only talk about my, not just my personal experience of working in the industry. And I worked on an actively managed impact investment fund at Wellington Management. We managed a billion dollars, three of us. And every year we beat the general stock market and we did it by investing in these companies that were kind of trying to solve world problems. And they were doing it in a profitable, repeatable, scalable way using technology. That distinction I think is very, very important because I think the previous incarnations of impact investing, i.e. ethical investing, socially responsible investing, have underperformed traditional investments over certain time periods. And I think that's because of the way they're structured. So Ethical SRI investing really is about screening out bad companies, then you're just left with some stuff. But that's not really an investment thesis, basically, is to screen out bad and leave some things. What is an investment thesis is saying, I want to invest in the companies of the future, companies underpinned by technology, companies that are sitting on these big structural trends that, if they get right, can earn outsized returns. That's what impact investing is. And I think that's why impact specifically can offer better returns than traditional investing and obviously way better than um, SRI and ethical that screen bad things out. Yeah, I think that ethical argument is quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because people have different ideas of what ethics, good and bad ethics are. So how yep. can you possibly, I mean, how, exactly. how can you measure it and how can you, uh, yeah, it's, it's too difficult. But yeah, this... And, and there's definitely an ethical argument to, in that, if, you get, if you engage in that ethical argument, there's ethical arguments to investing in oil and, and, and coal because some countries need it and without it, they wouldn't, you know, survive in the same way. I'm completely, you know, I'm not um, kind of blind to those arguments, but I think what impact investing is a very specific definition, which is investment into companies in order to generate at least a market rate return and have a measurable impact on society and the environment in a positive way, in a way that kind of roughly aligns with something like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, kind of furthering these or trying to solve these these big themes that we as 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 a community are trying to solve. So I think it takes away that ethical debate and it goes, right, are these companies actually developing a product and service that's linked to one of these goals? If not, then we're not investing in it. We're not saying they're a bad company. We're just saying that it isn't fitting in with this definition as we have it. And we think that definition ties in with good financial returns as well. Mm, and you say linked to, I mean, that that is, uh, that's something where different types of investors have, there's a bit of nuance there. Some people want yeah. the company to actually be making money from those those uh, those things that are having a positive contribution. Others are happy to, say, invest in a BP or a Shell because they are looking to the green side of things, but they are yeah. also still drilling yeah. for oil. Um, yeah. At Ticker, what do you, what, what, what's your yeah. preference? I think there's two very worthwhile um, versions of impact investing. And there's one version that we do, which is invest in the companies that are already good, basically, that was, we see it. So, And by good, I mean like all of their revenue is derived from the theme we're trying to get exposure to. So renewable energy, 
Vestas wind systems. All they do is wind energy, basically. That's a 100% pure play impact company. That's one version of impact investing. The other version is, is a version that we really couldn't do, and I think only the big investment managers in the world can do, which is invest in companies in order to engage with them and improve them. So you could invest in an oil and gas company and try and espouse the benefits of shifting their business. And a bunch of them are already doing it anyway. Um, and then the impact that you have from that is massive because those companies are huge and they supply the world with a lot of energy. So I think there's two vo- versions of it. Both are very, very credible and worthwhile. It's just that because of our scale, we can only do one at the moment. I think when we get big, we'll do the other as well. Um, a question which is maybe maybe slightly harder to answer, but one that people are, especially if they're thinking about getting into investing, and, and for, I mean, for a lot of people, it's actually the concept of financial markets, which they have a problem with in terms of a, yeah. a, the ethical standpoint. Is um, impact investing and ESG investing and the various different types of socially minded investing, (laughs) to what extent can the financial markets, capital markets, companies have a positive impact on the world? And to what extent do you think it comes down to government and policy and interventions from that side of things? Yeah, I think it has to be a blend of both. So if you look at the the UN estimates, I can't remember how much, how many trillions of dollars of capital it needs to solve these problems, basically. that Only a portion of that can come from governments and charities. We need business to foot, to foot the bill for the vast majority of it. So we need more businesses to have, to have their social and environmental DNA in their business model and the thing that they sell and the service that they provide to the world, because unless we do then we will fail at solving these problems. So, um, yes, historically, it's, probably, it's perhaps not been as evident in capital markets than it has been from governments and charities. But I think that's slowly changing. And I think it's dawning on everyone that capital markets need to just be tilted a little bit. It's not like a revolution needs to happen. It's a tilting. And then that wall of money tilts towards more productive resources for the future. And we can go uh, a long way towards solving the big problems that we care about. Do you think companies are, in general, starting to engage more with those important issues—the the climate, the social things—in your, in the the years that you've been working in this this area? Have you seen a change? Yes, I have. At the start, it wasn't so much because I started working this in 2014, and everyone thought we were just hippies messing around, basically. Um, and and then even I worked for Wellington Management, which is a huge company we would go to meetings with some of the big oil and, and gas companies and they wouldn't really pay attention to what we're saying. That's 100% changed now. And I think a lot of it is just driven by external consumer shifts in, in demand. You know, the power that the consumer can have in getting companies to, to make uh, changes to the business model. You saw it with Nike years ago with the supply chain. They've now completely revolutionized and Nike is completely different as a company because of the backlash they got. Um, Boohoo recently are having to do a similar kind of thing. You can see the power of of kind of consumer outcry and what it can do for, uh, to, uh, to these companies, the managements, the business models. So I think more of that is better in terms of um, nudging these companies in a better, more sustainable direction. And I've definitely seen that change in the past six, seven years. Interesting you bring up both Boohoo and, and Nike, actually. They're companies which um, yeah, historically definitely haven't ticked uh, many of the the uh, socially responsible boxes, but also have maybe tried to tick them, and Boohoo mm. certainly tried to tick them without actually doing the work that was required. Yeah. Do you think there's any kind of danger with this popularity, the fact that there's a lot of investors now who are chasing ESG and impact trends? Um, do you think there's any danger of companies actually just trying to, to say they're doing it without actually putting in the hard work? Yeah, huge danger, a huge danger. And you can see it with companies that get found out all the time that have just said the right things, but in reality, they're not, they're not doing anything different. I think one way 
one example of a way of finding out about that or a trend that I've seen started already. We've just become a B Corp as tickers uh, as a company, and um, you have other B Corps in the world like uh, Bulb in the UK. And basically, what it, it's a it's a company that's embedded social and environmental impact into their articles of association and reports on these um, areas. It, the, the application is as stringent as becoming FCA regulated. Basically, it was it actually was harder in some respects. This proper DD on the company to make sure that we are uh, who we say we are and we are we are operating in the way that we say we're operating. I think having external third-party certifications like that, like a regulatory certification, is one way that companies can go, we are this and here's kind of some of the proof that we are. And I think a lot more companies um, are, are applying. I know the B Corp uh, institution is seeing like a record number of applications because companies are uh, trying to apply for this thing. A lot of them, most of them get rejected, which is a great sign in terms of maintaining the integrity of the of the certification but i think things like that will have to come out where um if you say something it has to be backed up in some way by some kind of fact uh, or certification somewhere um so that c- consumers can know that what you say is true how far away do you think we are from a general pr- general principles around obviously we have general accounting standards but we yeah. don't have general impact standards at the moment do you think yeah. that's something that's coming i'm heartened and disheartened by a few things on that front because when i first started working in this industry in 2014 and going to conferences and you know learning about the industry the the same conversations are happening now that they're happening back then how do we measure it how do we report it that's not changed at all um so that's a reason to be disheartened the, the reason to be heartened by it is the uk government are taking it very seriously they have an impact on, they have a task force on impact reporting and impact investing there's a lot of smart people trying to tackle the problem which suggests that maybe in you know, I think it could be like 10 years time, we have a robust way of properly reporting on these things. Um, but I think it will take that kind of length of time and a lot of resources and a lot of people to figure it out properly. Because it and then I think once we have that, then I think change will accelerate even further after that. Because if we have an equivalent of an income statement, balance sheet and cash flow statement for impact, then that's the way we get standardized reporting. And we can really assess companies impact properly in the same way that we can assess financial uh, performance. And people are working on it, but it'll take time. And in the meantime, until we have that sort of thing, obviously there are apps like yourself and there are funds as well that, that people can trust. Um, yeah. But if, you, if you're a stock picker, how, how, do, you, how do you search for these, these good yeah. companies? Stock picking is a little bit harder, obviously. I was a, effectively, I was a stock picker in my professional, you know, former professional life. Um, I think... Uh, you have to properly if you if you're going to do the if you're going to do the work to stock pick you're going to have to do the work on on individual holdings and looking at the the companies um, looking at their annual reports looking at any third party certifications looking at data providers that provide a third party assessments of a company's supply chain management how they treat their employees all that kind of stuff generally speaking if you do all that work and you get a decent a decent outcome from that um, you can you can probably confidently say that this company's decent however. It's a lot of work for either an amateur or even a professional stock picker to do that. So I think what needs to happen in the future is a trusted or a number of trusted third-party ratings agencies kind of emerge. There are already already some, obviously, but I think the data needs to be improved that they, that feeds into them, that comes out. And you can look at, say, right, log in onto your, your brokerage account, see Tesla. Tesla's a bad example because they're already an impact company, but and you see a score next to them. And that score indicates that they're good on the X, Y, and Z. I think we need to get to that world relatively quickly. Um, and there's some data providers that you can look at for that now, but you kind of it's more like you need to pay and access the data. We need to get to a world where that's just de facto available, like financial performance, impact performance is available to every investor in the world. Um, probably a few years away from that as well, though. Yeah, yeah. 
okay well in the meantime investors still have tickets so. they do they do uh, and we welcome all investors <laughs> great well thanks very much tom good to speak to you oh, thank you for inviting me cheers so just to round up is uh is ESG and impact investing going to become more mainstream? Is it going to become a, a a thought of every investor when they first come into the markets rather than sort of an afterthought? Should I be thinking of, of being socially responsible, environmentally conscious? I, 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 th- I, I think it's um, already come of age. Um, I, th- I think it's just basically if you've got um, as much money um, being uh, invested on that basis as we've got at the moment and as much regulation and the growth in both money and regulation in, into this area, you can't afford, afford to ignore it. It is something which is going to drive returns in the future. But, but I would also suggest that as it gathers momentum and as this becomes more sort of day-to-day part of the way people think about their investment process, eventually it disappears as a standalone concept into the just the whole business of running companies and identifying good companies. Yeah, no, and I mean, the fact that we talk about it as a standalone concept, I, I, I personally think it's slightly artificial. It's, you know, it's something that's important, but it's, um, it's just part of assessing the quality of a company and the opportunities that a company has. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's wrong to think of it as something distinct. And also, actually, I think that's um, where private investors have a real advantage with ESG is that they can take a common sense of approach. They don't have to look into all this box ticking as being, you know, what drives their understanding of a, a company's ESG position. They, look in, they can look at what a company actually does, you know, what, you know, what the board actually is, how it's behaved in the past. Um, you know, what it's doing now and um, come to a you know, sensible conclusion along with everything else they're looking at. Um, I, but I, yeah, I think, I think professionals have a harder job because they've got all this non-standardised reporting and, um, you know, and, and this ratings and, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just a, you know, mess of different standards really. Yeah, well, hopefully... Hopefully things will start to improve, and we've definitely we've spoken to some people today who are optimistic about that. Even if uh, even if algae's not so optimistic, <laughs> I, think it, I think it will get we'll get there. It will just take a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And things are improving all the time as well. An optimistic note to end on. Thanks, algae. Thanks. That's all we have time for in this week's Investment Hour. But before we leave you, let me just talk you through what else we have in this week's issue of the Investors Chronicle. You've heard a lot about ESG on this podcast, but there is more in the mag. Not least a fabulous piece from Mary McDougall on how you can build a greener pension without damaging its performance or falling into the greenwashing trap. And one of our weekly tips is also a very interesting company that's a leader in the renewable energy field. I've looked at one of the biggest and most successful investment trusts in my editorial this week, Scottish Mortgage, but in the fund section, Dave Bax has been on the hunt for some more overlooked but outperforming smaller funds. And there are plenty more ideas in the company section, lots of results, and Algae Hall's high-quality small-cap stock screen. Small caps dominate the comments section this week, with Chris Dillo and Simon Thompson both looking at Ames' recent strong performance and how to play it. The property section is back in, and Emmy Powell is asking whether the London market might be in for a rough ride. And as Alex Newman writes in the news section, the FCA's latest intervention into the mortgage market suggests it is nervous. And in the main feature, Alex Hamer has looked at what shape the UK earnings recovery is likely to take over the next few years and the best way to ride it. Thanks to all our guests this week, Algie Hall, Ronald Cohen, Peter Toogood and Tom McGillicuddy. And thanks 
thanks as always to my co-host Megan and thank you all for listening we'll be back again soon take care hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.